0: KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we continue our reflections into these special topics, this special topic Thursday, which is tailored to your questions. Uh, This evening, we are going to take up the question of, can we judge? And uh, question B, (laughs) if we can judge, why do I feel so icky when I judge? So there is a lot in that 1A, 1B question, and uh, I'm excited for this evening because I'm going to take up this question with a guest who has been with me uh, many times, although it has been many weeks since he has been with me, and that is Bob Cross coming to us from
1: uh, Nevada. Thanks, Joe. I'm just excited to be back. This is, this is awesome. Great.
0: Yeah, to be I miss you, Bob. <laughs> <It's> yeah, been... <laughs> me too. And, and this' <laughs> is a great
1: topic tonight because, you know, I've been feeling very icky. Mm. You know, I'm prone to judgment yeah, and, and about I, this program.
0: I don't know, Bob, if there is any one topic right now that is any hotter than this topic of judging. And this has been something that has been sitting in the queue, if you will, for some time, and I've just been waiting for the right time. It's really interesting, because this past Sunday, the eighth Sunday in Ordinary Time, and of course now we are in Lent, but this past Sunday in Ordinary Time, we had a reading that came to us from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and... Paul was talking about judging, so I think this is in the minds and hearts of many people right now, just not because of what's going on in the world today, but also because of our recent readings. So it is time to talk about this. It is time to talk about this question, who am I to judge, really? And I love the, the part B, if you will. Uh, why do I feel so icky? Why do I feel so wrong? Because within that, question, you have a much deeper issue, Bob. So again, I'm very much looking forward to this program. And as always, I welcome all of you listening out there by way of podcast, especially in the countries of Brazil, Argentina, Chile, uh, Canada, Mexico. I also see on the grid France, Portugal, Spain, Italy, uh, India, China, South Africa. It is always uh, humbling to know that uh, so many of you out there are taking time out of your busy schedules to join us here on Seeds of Truth. And and again, Bob, for this evening, this is a universal topic, right? Everything we talk about is universal because the Catholic Church, by its very definition, is universal, but my goodness, this question of who am I to judge, it's a, it's a hot one. And we should also say, Bob, in light of Pope Francis' words back in 2013 when he was on the airplane, who am I to judge? This is a question that's been probably sitting in the queue for many people for a good four years now, so it is a due time that we talk about it, and I should also reference here a few books for our listening audience, Bob, the first being a book written by Fulton Sheen uh, titled Remade for Happiness, Achieving Life's Purpose Through Spiritual Transformation, and the second book is a book titled Who Am I to Judge? Uh, Responding to Relativism with Logic and Love by Edward Sri, by Ted Sri. He's someone who is Written quite a few books now, and uh, in his work, Who Am I to Judge?, he does a beautiful job of laying out this question and response, and we'll be drawing from some of his words as well. So, what do we do with it, Bob? You know, who am I to judge? I think something off the top is that we have to underscore <laughs> that there is a big difference between making a judgment and judging a person's soul. So, if you're to take a step back, You can put it in the context of what is objective and what is subjective, right? What is objective is what is external, revealed, and seen. And what is subjective is what is unknown, hidden, unseen. So this is what we have to just put out there initially, all right? So what is objective and and what is subjective? And on the heels of that, we are made to ask certain uh, questions. Is it okay for me to use my mind and simply make a judgment. If I notice it's raining, Bob, I make a judgment. I should bring my umbrella, right? If it's snowing, I make a judgment. I should wear my winter coat. Uh, And in the light of these judgments, am I a mean, hateful, bigoted person if I do this? Well, you and I both know, of course not. God gave us minds, and we are made to use them. Now, similarly, Can I use my mind to make a judgment about someone else's actions? If I see my three-year-old about to run into the street, can I make the judgment that's not good for her, she might get hit by a car? Or if I see her about to touch a hot burner on the stove, as she almost did the other night, can I use my mind and make the judgment that's not good for her, she will get burned? If I do this, am I saying she's a horrible person? Well, again, of course not. I'm just observing that she is about to do something that will cause her great harm. Now, here's the thing, Bob. We can stop there, and that's all fine and well, but we have to take this one step further. Can I use my mind and make a judgment about someone else's moral actions? Maybe there's a young female college student who is sleeping around with one man after another each week. Can I use my mind and make the judgment? She's not going to be happy living this way. She's never going to find lasting love that she longs for, of course. But here's the snag, and we have to be clear on this, Bob, for all of our listeners. I'm not judging her soul if I do that. She may be doing something objectively wrong, but I don't know her personal situation before God. I don't know her background. I don't know her personal situation. I don't know her intentions. And that's, that's a big one, Bob. We don't know anyone's person's intentions. And in that sense, we can say with Pope Francis, who am I to judge? A soul's status before God is something between that person and God alone. Certainly various factors and people's lives may impair, you know, their, their free choice and choices in such a way that limits their culpability and moral guilt. And another key point, I think, for us, Bob. But again, as, as Pope Francis explains in Joy of the Gospel, and you're with me, Bob, when we were talking about Joy of the Gospel, and Enjoy of the Gospel, paragraph 172, he said, each person's situation before God and their life in grace are mysteries, which no one can fully know from without. So in the example given there, perhaps this young woman has never experienced authentic love. Maybe she was sexually abused. Maybe she has always been taught that this is what it means to be a liberated woman. But such a woman needs to know my compassion, Bob, your compassion, not just a lecture on the moral law. So saying that, it is absolutely crucial that if I care about her or you care about her, that we should say something. I mean, if she is a close friend or family member, for example, should I talk to her about it? I wouldn't be judging her soul. That's between her and God alone. But to love is what? I mean, how have we defined love, Bob? To love is to will the good of the other for the sake of other. Right? Love is constantly going out, and it's asking the question, what is the best for the other? And if I truly love this person, then it's the loving thing to show her the better way. And it is essential, really, to do so in the light of love. And yes, I need to do this prudently, in the right time, and in the right way, with great gentleness, with great humility, with great compassion, mindful that the word compassion, coming from the Latin compassio means to suffer with. Okay, we're mindful of this.
1: Um, That's such a great and... And example of something that I think we all face and it, there's going to be a common thread I think if we were to think through a variety of different situations that we encounter mm-hmm. with those that we care about or those that we <clears throat> feel like, oh gosh, we are put into a situation to judge. Many times we're in, we're in, in the situation you described especially, it's, it's typically with someone that we care about uh, first and foremost. But you know, we become so reactionary We think about something that someone else is doing that we get caught up in the moment and we immediately go right into lecture mode or what are you doing or what do you think you're doing without, like you said, taking into account why and what is causing some of that behavior We're we're too quick, I think, in a reactionary type of situation to really understand that young woman that we see, that we know, that we care about. But we also recognize that, gosh, I want to help her in any way that I can. I think sometimes, too, that, you know, wanting to help someone that we care about gets a little confused as well, Mm -hmm. okay?
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And as you use the word, Bob, reaction, I want to put that in the context of the virtue of recollection, because in our reactions, there's an absence of the virtue of recollection. There's an absence of a clear response. The virtue of recollection is drawing back, right, and asking the question, what is the meaning of this moment? How am I to respond am i to engage this person the virtue of recollection withdraws and assesses a situation for what it is and understands that you want to know what i don't have to respond immediately okay or maybe i should better say i don't have to react immediately and this is why we need to espouse towards the virtue of recollection the virtue of drawing back so often we do react (laughs) we don't take stock into the deeper meaning of each and every moment and be rest assured bob We are made to see that God wants to be a part of each and every encounter that we have, whether it be at church, whether it be at work, whether it be at home, wherever it may be, God wants to be a part of each and every encounter. And if there's a conflict, that is when He really wants to be involved, okay? (laughs) Because the lasting icon of Christianity is the crucifix, which is, of course, the great victory that came through great conflict. So if we want to claim a great victory in our relationships and our friendships, we have to understand that conflict isn't the worst thing. It's going to happen. Moreover, God wants to be a part of it so as to bring something good out of it.
1: Sure. And, you know, in this particular example, for instance, when, you know, there's someone who's engaging in behavior that you know is not good for them, you know, and not being reactionary, I guess, it's just... Goes without saying that in our phonetic society, many times we do things in a hurry, without taking the opportunity to recollect, like you described. And and I suggest or uh, and remind myself that you know there's a certain amount of prayer that should go into that, so that Amen. you can, you know, be predisposed or be at least in a in a position where you're talking to them lovingly and asking them questions and caring about them, which is going to come off much better than saying, "Hey, what the heck are you doing?"
0: Yeah, that interior attitude of faith, being predisposed, that's so, so important, because so often that is what is missing. You know, one of the things that surrounds this question so often, Bob, is uh, the, the word relativism. Benedict Sixteenth, in his opening homily as Pope in 2005, talked about how we are living in an age of relativism, how we are living in a dictatorship of relativism, and what is the word relative? What does that mean? Well, relativism is the idea that there is no one absolute truth, that essentially each individual decides for himself what is true and and what is right and what is wrong. A relativist would say that all truth claims are entirely subjective, just merely reflecting one's personal feelings, opinions, desires, or or sentiments. So you can have your truth and, and I can have my truth, but What's key here, Bob, is for the relativist, there is no the truth <laughs> to which we are all accountable. And ultimately, as Ratzinger noted, you know, relativism is emerging as a new kind of totalitarianism, one which seeks to push the Christian belief and truth further out of the mainstream. And I think this is very much the cultural context to why this question is uh, so important, because what are we left with? Well, that's good for you, but for me, and that's the real stock phrase there. Edwards III talks about this. You know, for me, abortion is wrong. But to say for me, abortion is wrong is nothing more in today's age than, well, <laughs> for me, chocolate is better than vanilla. For me, anytime fitness is better than our local in-motion fitness. For me, right, and you can continue to offer one juxtaposition after another. But the key stock phrase is, for me, whatever I think, as opposed to truth coming from outside of ourselves. Now, why is this problematic, Bob? Because ultimately, Jesus Christ came as the revelation of all truth, and he invites us into this truth. And yes, a part of that truth is an objective moral standard, and this is something that we abide in. Why? Because Jesus loves us, Jesus wants us to be
1: free sure, if you know and in, in the taste world, how many times do you hear things like, "Well, um everybody's doing it, so you know it should be okay, mm-hmm. uh, everybody is you know cohabitating or living with one another before they're married i mean it's it's such an easy fallback or you know the one that when you might hear it right. At this time of the year, well, you know, hey, um, I'm taking a few extra deductions and I'm cheating on my taxes a yeah, little yeah, bit. But yeah, hey, yeah. everybody, <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. You know? I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I, it. I sometimes, if, if if I was a little, kind of hope the IRS isn't listening, a little <laughs> exaggerating <laughs> on my business expenses a little bit, I feel guilty, and it's like, yeah. you know, my gosh. So, I mean, it's just such a slippery slope in relevant mm-hmm. business. Oh, gosh, you know, we could than the entire rest of the program and many others, talking about all the examples of that. But you're, you're absolutely right. And you, know, you think of those examples, and they're around us all the time, and those are judgments that we're making that are, are, are being affected by mm-hmm. virtue of not really looking at objective, objective mm-hmm. truth, like you're saying.
0: That's right. Uh, we have to ask the question that comes to us from Genesis 4-9, am I my brother's keeper? Now, am I my brother's keeper? We have to understand, Bob, the relativist way... Is not how Jesus lived. I mean, this really gets to the crux of it. You know, how did, did Jesus live? Was Jesus indifferent to others? Well, of course he wasn't. He didn't say, well, it's not my life, whatever works for you or whatever works for them. No, no. Jesus came with the firm hand and also the gentle hand. The gentle, the soft side of mercy, compassion, and acceptance. The firm hand the side that constantly calls us to conversion. You know, on one hand, Jesus loved everyone, even in their sins and weaknesses. He came not to condemn and he taught us to do the same. Judge not as we have spoken to it. But again, Bob, on the other hand, Jesus persistently challenged people to repent from the evil that they were doing. And why did he do this? Because he was the incarnation of love. Love motivated him. He did this because he loved them and knew they would not be happy living apart from God's plan. We can see these two sides of love, especially in the way Jesus treated the woman caught in adultery. Jesus loved her even in her sin, but he also loved her so much. that what did he say? Well, I don't condemn you, but also do not sin again. He understands the importance of freedom. Freedom there, as I was mentioning earlier, Archbishop Fulton Sheen. And I love this example he gives here, Bob, that I want to read as it relates to freedom. When you buy an automobile, the manufacturer gives you a set of instructions. He tells you the pressure to which you ought to inflate your tires, the kind of oil you ought to use in the crankcase and the proper fuel to put in the gas tank. He has nothing against you by giving you these instructions, as God had nothing against you in giving you commandments. The manufacturer wants to be helpful. He is anxious that you get the maximum utility out of the car. God is anxious that we get the maximum happiness out of life. Such is the purpose of his commandments. That's what it's about, Bob. Freedom is always caught up in law. We have used the analogy before of the piano, and I always apply this to my oldest son, Colby. You know, when he was four years old and he was first learning the piano was he free to play the piano? I mean, did I stop him from pounding and striking the keys? No. But I ask you again, was he free to play the piano? I would argue no. Seven years later, here he is reading music, playing Canon and D and all the rest. And let me tell you something, he is free to play the piano. Why? Why? because he understands the rules, if you will, of how to play the the piano. Dare I say, the commandments, Bob, of how to play the piano. And now he's free. When is the sun most free and happy, but when it is shining? When is the fish most free and happy, but when it is swimming? When is man most free and happy, but when he is loving? loving in light of the commandments that, well, free us to be the best version of who God is calling us to be. I know you and I were talking before, Bob. John Paul II would highlight this who we are versus who we ought to be, and that there's a gap between the person we are and the person we ought to be. And the only way we close that gap in conversion is by what? Following our Lord's commandments, huh?
1: Sure. In St. John, I mean he he spent so much time, especially with young people, especially young people who were in courtship, or young people who were recently married and had young families and You talk about someone who understood what freedom really represented his life you know being affected by Nazi occupation and then of mm-hmm. course the communist rule that formed him mm-hmm. in terms of the way that he looked at freedom, but he was really immersed in watching and observing other people. I'm sure he would admonish and he would guide and he would counsel young people, but at the same time, he loved them so much. Everything was coming from, as you put it so beautifully a few minutes ago, from the standpoint of caring and loving that person Mm -hmm. rather than passing judgment. There again, it's more about if we're looking at something that someone else does, if we look at them through the lenses of love and, and caring and understanding, going to go a lot further in terms of our ability to be able to deal with our issues. Really, our issues are what they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. now. I mean, it's their issues too, but we're dealing with that, that propensity to judge that we sometimes don't feel good about or don't understand how to deal with.
0: Yeah, the second part of that question, why, why do I feel icky? Well, first and foremost, it calls you out, right? <laughs> right? It challenges you to not only go deeper in your faith, but at the same time ask the question, am I doing the very thing that I'm calling out in this other person? Because often is the case that's going on. I've been in numerous conversations where people have shared that, and I myself have certainly experienced that. So part of the ickiness is our own ickiness, and then that sense of, yeah, you want to know what? We don't wake up every morning, Bob, and say, "Yay, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna admonish someone today, right? (laughs) You just don't do that, and if you do, you and I have to talk, right? (laughs) So so there's an element of how this spiritual work of mercy, because really this is what we were talking about, right, to bring others closer to Christ within the context of admonishment, calls us to humility, and that uh, humility really should uh, steer and guide us for sure. Now, part of this conversation, Bob, has to also take up how we are called to live, because many people believe, if only implicitly, that to be holy is to be stifled, less free, less themselves. Now, maybe they think it's hell all the way to heaven and and heaven all the way to hell. As Christians, it's vital that we understand this whole mindset is profoundly wrong. God is good. God isn't holding out on us, as Satan suggested to even in Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 5 in the fall, right? Because essentially in the end, what was going on there? Well, Satan was telling Adam and Eve, God's holding out on you. When of course, we know that not to be true. What is it? Uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 31. Paul says, God is for us and not against us. He is love and he, he wills our good. We just talked about how love is to will the good of the other. Bob, I can never will your good as much as God can I? No one can will my good as much as God can. And moreover, as much as we think we know what's best for ourselves, God knows better. And so we have to be humble. You know, we're talking about how this projects out towards other people. Now we have to take ownership of this when we admonish and how we need to look in the mirror. We should also say, now it would be remiss if we didn't, that our predisposition is essential to receiving the admonishment as well if you really, really cared for me, Bob, you would tell me if I was doing something wrong. And as much as I don't like it, I have to be willing to listen to that. It's really talking about this from the other side. I have to be willing to listen to you. So as much as if I'm admonishing someone, I have to listen to that someone and all of their historical experiences, as I talked about it from the outset, as Pope Francis talked about it, on the flip side of that, I would have to, to listen as well. Why is the person telling me that I'm doing something wrong? Why is this person reproving me? No, he's coming to me in gentleness. He's coming to me in humility. He's coming to me in compassion and love. Why? You want to know what? My friend cares about me. And you want to know what? He's right. And I could only approach an admonishment that way if I am too predisposed, if you follow. Huh, Bob? I mean, this is quintessential to the larger discussion as well. Just not what's going out, but also what's, what's coming in.
1: Sure. And you think about your children, you think about your friends and and those that are around us that we tend to judge more than than others. But sure, back to that whole notion of and our society and relativism, you're really not free if you're allowing yourself to do things that other people say is okay to do. What you're doing is you're following or conforming to things Mm -hmm. that they allow or things that they do in their lifestyles. And Real true freedom is the ability to be able to say, no, I don't think so. I think, mm. you know, to mm. be loved by God, to show love for other people and caring and consideration, and to do things that I know help make me feel better about myself and what I'm, where I'm at, through God's love, is really where the true freedom really rests.
0: Amen. I, I like that point you just made there, Bob, to be truly free is, is to say no. It is to say no, because what it shows is that you're not possessed by the world, but ultimately you in a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And we should add there too, I don't know if we could ever say that we are possessed by God as well, as much as God possesses us. Because the thing of it is, when you put this in the context of the nature of love, you never really possess love per se, because the nature of love is constantly giving itself away. So the more you love, the more you're giving away. And the more you give away, the more you love. I mean, it's the logic that is for many so unconventional of the Christian and Catholic faith. If you want more of something, give it away. If you want more joy, if you want more of a particular virtue, give it away. That's the logic of Christianity. And, and, And why, Bob? Because this constitutes the very life of Jesus Christ. He became more... To the degree that he was more for everyone else. And that is our driving point when it comes to this larger topic of, you know, who am I to judge? You put this question and you insert it in the context of love, it begins to make sense in the light of what love itself means. Willing the good of the other for the sake of other. If other is about to fall off a cliff, you say, hey, you're about to fall off a cliff, right? You just don't let them fall off a cliff. And this is what it's about. And, and here's the thing, Bob, and maybe we can close with this point. When we receive an admonishment, you know, a person doesn't sit there and say, yay, you have, you've admonished me. <laughs> it's going to sting. But good medicine, when applied to the wound, Bob, always stings. But guess what? When you take off that Band-Aid and maybe the ointment that is underneath that Band-Aid, there will be healing. Any closing thoughts, Bob?
1: Just one. You know, Jesus Christ gave us the ultimate gift of his passion and mm. his resurrection. And as just in sacramental marriage, we give a gift of ourselves to our partner. Let's all think about giving a gift to those that we encounter by helping them through whatever it is that we see that they think they need help with rather than coming off as judging.
0: Mm. Amen. Amen. All right, with that, we'll close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen.